0: Today's reading will be Genesis chapter 38, verses 24 through 30. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her room. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took the scarlet thread and tied it to the wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, So this is how you have broken out, and he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread in his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. Thinking this
1: week about um, about a pitcher named Adam Wainwright, for those that aren't following. Adam Wainwright has been probably the, well, he's been the best pitcher on the Cardinals for about the last 14 years. This may be his last year. Yesterday may have been his last game because they seem to be fading quickly, but uh, I was thinking about different highlights of his career as I wondered if this was going to be it for him, and I was thinking of the strangest game that Adam Wainwright pitched. There was this middle of the season, I think it was last year sometime, It's just a random game, nothing particularly significant about it. Except he started pitching, and they noticed, five, six, seven pitches in, that he hadn't really topped about 75 miles an hour. He's always been a guy that mixed, mixed a nice fastball with a good cutter and curveball, it had a lot of range and speed, but he wasn't doing it. It was all change-ups, one after the other. Now, they were moving like crazy, and so these guys couldn't hit him, and it kept on going inning after inning. And so finally, people were saying to figure out, something's up, something's weird, Um, And sure enough, after the game, they talked to him. He he wound up pitching one of the best games he had in a while. He'd been rehabbing his shoulder and having all sorts of problems. And he just said he got out there and as soon as he started warming up, he realized he didn't have it. So he called the catcher out and said, look, it's going to be weird today. Let's have fun. And so he just started throwing all that he had, which was about a 75-mile-an-hour fastball, which is not quite major league status. Um, but he moved it as much as he could. And so on that day, he was a pitcher, not a thrower. He didn't have anything to throw. One of the strangest things that you could have seen um, Genesis 38 is kind of like that moment. I think it's even weirder than a fastball pitcher doing nothing but changeups ups the whole day. I think it's like this, where all of a sudden we're expecting this fastball and we get the guy throwing a cat, um, which was just a fantastic picture. Um, it's a fantastic image, and you know, for a dog person, I finally understand what cats can be good for. Um, so it's this moment here where we're all set up for something. Genesis 37, we talked about last week, is this picture of Joseph and this, this trauma. That's coming to this family. We're we're getting introduced to the next generation of Jacob's sons, and it's not been a great introduction. They decide they're gonna kill the one that they don't like because he's got these dreams that someday he's gonna be in charge. And and it's a it really is a picture of a spiritual warfare. They are rejecting um, God's purpose for their family. And so as we follow the story of these patriarchs, of God's chosen nation, as he builds this nation, we're left wondering what in the world is God going to do with this nation, and then what's going to happen to Joseph? Because while they think he's dead, the very last verse of Genesis chapter 37, um, we get this reveal that he's still alive and he's made it to Egypt. And so, like a good storyteller, Moses here gives us chapter 38, and instead of giving us the follow-up to this cliffhanger, he goes with his B story, and he tells us the story of Judah and Tamar, and it is out of, seems out of place. In fact, I've seen one scholar, world-renowned scholar, his writing on Genesis 38, says explicitly this has nothing to do with the rest of Joseph. Well, I'll respectfully disagree with that assessment. And what I'll assert as we open Genesis 38 and move through, very strange, very difficult story, um, that this strange story is in fact both a preview or in anticipation of a lot of what we're going to learn about God through the story of Joseph, as well as, I think, clarifying some things that we might otherwise miss. Something significant is happening here in chapter 38 that is going to set us up to understand everything that's going to be following in the chapters to come in the story of Joseph. If you don't have your Bibles yet, open them up to Genesis 38. Get them open because this thing we're going to move through this. Very challenging story, but it opens with crisis, and it opens with Judah. The very first thing we learn in Genesis chapter 38, verse 1, it's that it says it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hariah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her, went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. So, it's a picture of, of Judah leaving his brothers, going away from his family, and marrying a Canaanite woman. There, now, there's a lot going on there. Now, Judah, we've already got introduced last week. He was kind of the best of a pretty lousy lot because he was one of the ones that decided we probably shouldn't kill our brother. In fact, you know, he is our brother. In fact, Judah says something like, hey, he is our brother, he's our blood, therefore we shouldn't kill him, we should sell him into slavery. Doesn't look great, but in comparison to the other guys, he was. Was really the cream of the crop. And of course, we're hearing Judah. The initial audience is hearing Judah, and they're thinking the tribe of Judah, this revered tribe, this celebrated tribe. We're hearing Judah as New Testament Christians, and we hear, this is the line of Jesus that we're talking about here. So who is this Judah that would be such a significant figure in the life of of Israel and ultimately the life of the church? Well, he's the one who's leaving behind his family, He's like all of these other rebels that we've had throughout the years. He's an Esau figure. He is Lot. He's the one that separates and goes out among the Canaanites. And when it describes him meeting, seeing this Canaanite, captivated by her, and ultimately marrying her, um, the initial audience, the Jews when they're hearing this story, are cringing. Because intermarriage with Canaanites is a forbidden thing. And we should be cringing too because we see him turning his back On God, turning his back on his brothers. We should see the kind of spiritual crisis that's happening here. This is a son that is in rebellion. And now, throughout the chapter, we're covering like 20 years of Judah's life. He has these sons. He's not having just Ur, but he has several others. He has Onan, and then he has Shelah. These three sons are going to be significant because we're quickly introduced that it seems they largely are following in their father's way. That crisis comes in verse 6. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So Judah has abandoned his family. Judah has intermarried. Judah is turning his back on on the family of Jacob and the God of Jacob, and now Ur is following in his footsteps, and he's put to death, and we don't even know what he did. We just know that he was wicked. And so then comes this strange custom that we have to get our mind around to understand everything that follows in chapter 38. Verse 8, Judah says to Onan, go to your brother's wife, perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, raise up offspring for your brother. Now that's I think, a fairly delicate way of translating that. That's describing what they call the levirate marriage. And it's a word that you can hear Levi in it, but it's not Levi. It's levir is the Latin term for brother-in-law. It is a custom that was apparently in practice now, and it will actually be instilled in Deuteronomy for the people of Israel. So again, the first audience would would recognize this custom, which is to ensure the preservation of the family line if a brother dies, the brother would marry that, um, marry his wife, and if he, if he had no offspring, would marry the wife, produce offspring, and those offspring would be considered the offspring of the dead brother. That is very strange to us, but that is a custom that is built around a culture that's that, where family line is everything, and passing on generational inheritance, all these things, that's everything. So they celebrate that, they, and they instill that actually in biblical practice. But the, the idea of the marriage is a protection of the widow. Widows don't have really any, they're exposed when their husband dies. That's the nature of that world, that patriarchal world. So it is a protection for her, it is securing her a family, and it's a securing lineage for that eldest brother. Well, that's the law. That's what he's supposed to do. And Judah is actually enforcing the law and telling his brother, his son, to go do it. He doesn't want to do it. And so, what follows in the next few verses is a description that what he does is he takes Tamar, he exercises the duty enough to get him his pleasure, but he refuses to help her bear a son. He will not, he will do everything he can to prevent her from having offspring. In verse 10, you get the comment on the practice. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. So now two of his three sons have been put to death, not just because of circumstances of life, but they've been put to death by God for their wickedness. Tamar is left in crisis. Now what does she do? Then, verse 11, Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. Now that sounds like he's doing his job. we will say, well, Sheila's going to grow up, so we'll get you your son. You'll be protected. You can stay in the house until then. But then you get that commentary at the end, the real revelation of what's going on. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So it sounds like from that moment that he's saying one thing, but he really means another. He's keeping Tamar away from the son. He doesn't want to do this. So there's the crisis. Judah is in rebellion against his family. His sons have followed him into that wickedness, and now Judah, uh, Judah's fear will now threaten the very line of Judah. He's willing to not have offspring. He's willing to not have grandkids if it means preserving that line, or if it means protecting his son's life. His fear has a threat that hovers over everything. It's threatening the family line, which means it's threatening the promises of God. Remember, God's promise, God's charge to these people is be fruitful and multiply. I'm going to make you into a great nation. The offspring of Judah is a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham, which is to make you into a great nation. So his, um, his progeny, his children, his children's children are a fulfillment of God's commitment to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. But now the fear of Judah is threatening that. It's threatening that family line. It's threatening the promises of God. And you need to see this story, this crisis in those terms to really understand what follows. Tamar is being treated poorly. She has been treated as one uh, with injustice. And now, uh, but it's my, more than just Tamar. It is now that the line itself, the promise of God, is being threatened because of the rebellion of Judah. All is not well among the sons of Jacob. And then, verse 12, begins something of a story, really, of an unlikely hero. And I use that term knowing it kind of sits a little odd for us when you consider the events that follow. But I think this is a picture of Tamar emerging as a kind of hero in the story. So what happens? Well, verse 12 describes, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, she daughter, died. Uh, so Judah is now a widower. And so when he was comforted, he went up to Tenma to his sheep shearers, He and his friend here are the Adulamites. So this time of the harvest, the time of sheep shearing, there's a lot that goes on. There's a lot of celebration, and everyone seems to know what's really going on, and it's not just the sheep shearing, because verse 13 says, When Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Tenma to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and set at an entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Tenma. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, And she had not been given to him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Now, let's set up that before we get on with the rest of it. So, here you've got this picture of Tamar moving from being a passive figure in this story. This is where she finally does something. She's been caught up in other stories so far. She's been a victim of being married off to a lousy guy who was killed by God for his wickedness, and then she gets passed off to the deadbeat brother who's going to take her for his pleasure but is not going to fulfill his duty. He gets killed off by God for his wickedness, and now she's lingering in Judah's household, apparently for years, waiting for her to be handed off as the law. States to the third brother, and Judah won't do it. She can read between the lines, she understands what's going on, she sees the indifference of Judah, and so she acts to deceive him. She dresses herself up as a prostitute. Verse 16, verse 16 he propositions her, and they negotiate the fee. He says, I'll send you a young goat, verse 17, from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, what pledge shall I give you? Your signet, your cord, your staff that's in your hand. So all these markers of who he is. So they negotiate this. He goes to her. And ultimately, she becomes pregnant. Now, in that, that interaction, Tamar is emerging here as a picture of a kind of righteous deceiver. Now, I've used that... Term several times throughout Genesis, the righteous deceiver. And I think that's something we've got to get our heads around again and again because we see it over and over again. We have a lot of deceivers. This is a family line of deception. They like deception. Abraham passes off Sarah as his wife. Isaac does the same thing with his. Jacob, of course, has all sorts of deception going on. But, you know, in all of those things, there's this sense, is this good deception or is there bad deception? As we've talked about when we looked at the story of Jacob, his mother was working a kind of righteous deception. She was deceiving her husband Isaac, not because she was evil or because she was wicked or because she was selfish, but because Isaac was betraying the Lord. Isaac was at war with God, and her deception getting Jacob to get the blessing is simp- was simply securing for Jacob what God said he was owed, what God said he was entitled to. God had purposed that for Jacob's life, and the mother was willing to work in order to secure that commitment from God. This is a picture of what Tamar is doing here, too. She's stuck in a culture that does, gives her no voice, gives her no, um, you know, she, she can't take him to court, she can't go before a council and say, look, I'm being treated unjustly, there's a violation of the law, I'm being abandoned, I'm being exposed. No, she's stuck. And in the midst of that silence, she finds a way to speak up. She finds a way to get her way. And it's a kind of deception. That's a picture of a righteous deceiver. That actually happens several times throughout Scripture. But it's not simply that she's securing something for herself. That alone would be something I think that would make us sympathetic to her. And actually, Tamar, when she's depicted throughout Scripture, it's always positive, there is no judgment. From the text here in Genesis, there is no judgment on all of Scripture or indictment of her actions. We can understand first that her rights were being denied, and so we can be sympathetic to her. But we also see her rights being denied in theological terms. That it's not just her rights being denied. Judah's at war with God here. And here Tamar is doing something very strange. um, But she's doing something in order to secure what Judah should be trying to secure himself. Notice too, where there's an indictment, it's not on Tamar, it's on uh, Judah. There's this sense of after he goes there, he's trying to find her later to bring her the young goat, sends his friend, he won't go himself, um, but he's looking for the friend, or one of his servants, uh, can't find her. Uh, And actually there's a little play in the Hebrew, verse 21, It's he's looking for the wrong type of Prostitute. The term that you'll see in some of your translations in 15 is the term prostitute. In verse 21, it's the cult prostitute. Those are two different roles. The cult prostitute is connected with Canaanite worship. It's like Judah would say, well, I'll go to the prostitute, but I won't go to that one because that kind of smacks of idol worshiping. There's some, maybe there's some little line left that he's got in him. Can't find her. And then Judah says, verse 23, well, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. There's this awareness of him that what he's doing would bring shame on himself, on his family. He doesn't want to be mocked. He doesn't want to be made fun of. There's this sense where if there's an indictment, it's on Judah himself. He's blind to it. He doesn't see it. Because then we see in verse 24 how that deception begins to work its magic. Verse 24, you got three months later, Judah is told, Tamar, your daughter in law has been immoral. She is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. Now, think about that moment. First off, is that the appropriate response? Well, there are exceptions. There are times in the law where burning would actually be an appropriate punishment. This isn't one of them. This is a picture that's something like David and Nathan. David, you know, has, he, he sinned as king? He sinned against Uriah. He took Bathsheba as his wife. He had Uriah killed. You know, he was the man with power. He killed the one who was powerless. He thought he gets away with it. The prophet Nathan comes before him and gives him this story that, for the reader, looks a whole lot like David. And then David stands up and gives this condemnation: "Let him be killed." Uh, he was infuriated. And then Nathan points a finger and says, you're the man. And then he can finally see that sin in himself. What Judah here, in his first response to finding out that his daughter Tamar was pregnant, is a kind of spiritually blind double standard. When he does the action, well, boys will be boys. Let's just make sure no one finds out about it. When she does the action, she's brought shame on all of us. Let her be burned. There's this double standard that shows just um, the lack of spiritual awareness, the lack of spiritual sensitivity, the depth of his sin and rebellion. We shouldn't have any good feelings about Judah at this point in the story. And so he's going to kill her. And then verse 25, as she's being brought out, she's sent word by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And so tell me whose they are. And there's that Nathan moment. You're the man. Verse 26. Here's our hope in the story. Because that second response offers a kind of change of heart. What does he say? She's more righteous than I. Notice she's being called righteous here for her action. She's more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. He acknowledges that he's a lawbreaker. He acknowledges that he has exposed her. There's, there's not a full confession here. It's not as if he suddenly has this deep spiritual insight that he realizes that he's at war with God and I, you know, I need to come back, I need to repent, come into faith, and all these kinds of things. Not all of that's there. But in that response, there is hope for a heart change in him. There's this hope that there's this kind of spiritual sensitivity. There's a, there's a hope of a kind of turning point in his character that this kind of tailspin that Judah has been on, you have kind of Judah as only slightly better than the lousy brothers, and now he's getting worse because he's leaving the brothers behind, and then it seems to be that there's this degeneration because the offspring are all wicked. Is there any hope for any of them? Well, yeah, there's this hope of this turning point in his character. And that becomes the turn in the story. That's actually going to lead to a better thing. We're going to see in a few chapters, Judah gets a much better view later on. There's something about Judah being changed. But where it ends is not just with that dialogue, but with the birth of these twins. And so she gives birth to Judah's children. She gives birth to these twins, and, and there are echoes. There's a reflection of Jacob and Esau in their birth, the, the, as they're being born, one sticks his hand out and they tie the cord around and the other pushes his way past and comes out there. So there's this fight, this sense of Jacob and Esau kind of story of these, the, the, the firstborn and the younger at war. But there's also a picture of the triumph of the youngest. And I would suggest that's not simply a memory of Jacob and Esau, but an anticipation of the story of Joseph. Remember, Joseph is presented in 37 as the young one. Now, he's not the youngest. Benjamin has got a piece in the story too, and we'll eventually get to Benjamin. But Joseph was resented, hated by his brothers, because he was given dreams by God to say, though you are the youngest, they will all bow down to you. They resent the fact that the youngest is being preferred by God over the oldest. They resent that, and they're trying to overturn that. They are fighting against the purposes of God, and yet, here, the, young, the youngest triumphs. The youngest is given the preference. As an anticipation of what we're going to see in the chapters to follow, despite the brothers' best attempts to subvert the plan of God, God will get his way. Joseph, the younger, will rise up. And so that's the story of how this chapter 38 anticipates what we're going to see in the story of Joseph. A couple of things I want you to think about. First, Genesis 38 reminds us of what we saw at the very beginning of chapter 37. One of the first things, verse 2, it said, these are the generations of Jacob. It doesn't say these are the generations of Joseph. This is not fundamentally Joseph's story. Now, that's what we remember it as. I've even tied the whole sermon series around Joseph. Yes, this is Joseph's story, but it's not ultimately Joseph's story. It's Jacob's story. Because this is not about God saving the one forgotten son. It is about God using that one forgotten son to save a nation. He's actually saving nations, (laughs) and saving the world. But in course of it, he is saving the sons of Jacob. Joseph's story is about Jacob and his offspring. God is faithful to work through Joseph as he's faithful to work even through somebody like Tamar. First, see that God is faithful to his promise to an unfaithful people. God's grace is never—he doesn't give this grace as a contingency. Well, if you prove yourself worthy, then I'll extend my grace. God is doing this work on behalf of an unfaithful people. Even as you see Judah at the depth of his depravity, as you see his offspring degenerating, and you say, well, what hope is there? God is working. God's working on behalf of a people. And as he does so, he's doing this through those that we often forget. Tamar is forgotten by those around her. She's cast off. She's cast aside. She's the one that's easy to forget. She's the widow. They don't notice the widows. They overlook them. They overlook them in the Old Testament. They overlook them in the New Testament. That's why the church in the New Testament has so much emphasis on caring for the widows. Because they're the ones that the culture forgets. But God sees those who others forget. And in fact, it is the forgotten ones that are the very means by which God works his salvation. And if God can work through a forgotten widow named Tamar, God can also work through a forgotten son named Joseph. And if he can work through forgotten Tamar and forgotten Tamar and Joseph, then God can work through you and I as well. God is faithful to an unfaithful people. God is working uh, among those and seeing those who others forget. But his work of salvation is also pursuing holiness in his people. See that in Judah. We've seen this time and time again. This is, I think this is why this story echoes so much of the deception of Isaac. I said, why, why do you have all this big deception um, with, with Rachel and, and, and Isaac and all this thing with Jacob and Esau? Well, part of it is, I said at the time, that, that in this deception that she was... She secured the promise of God for Jacob, which God can take care of himself. But what she did in the process was save Isaac. That's what's happening here. There's a lot of ways that God could have preserved the line of Judah. But what Tamar does in this confrontation, as she really risks, literally risks life and limb in order to stand up for what um, she should be provided for by Judah, she is saving Judah in the process. God is not just interested in giving salvation to a lousy people and say, well, see, I can save them despite themselves. He gives salvation as a means of transformation. He's changing us. We're not finished yet. God doesn't give us salvation through Christ to say, well, now I've got them saved and now they can just rest and not worry about a thing. He saves us in order to transform us. He is making us holy so that we can live in a holy relationship with him for eternity. God is always pursuing holiness in his people. I think that's often misunderstood today. You know, I was reading not too long ago, this discussion, you know, a common thing is, well, God doesn't expect perfection. People were trying to reflect on that statement. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. Actually, he does, (laughs) He does expect perfection, uh, which is why he's given us the cross of Christ. We can't achieve it. And that every time we say, well, I'm only human, it's not that we're only human, it's that we're sinners. And God is changing us through Christ. And where we will be in eternity with God is human in a sinless relationship with Christ. A sinless relationship with God through Christ. That's the work of the gospel that's alive and well within us. It's not that we will say in eternity, well, I'm only human. It's that I'm human. Through Christ, I'm the human I'm supposed to be. God is pursuing holiness in his people. And God remembers and works through the forgotten. Um, They live in a world where justice for the powerful is different than justice for the rest of us. Does that seem that different than it does today? But here in chapter 38, you are seeing that injustice reversed. God sees the forgotten. God saves the forgotten. And God uses the forgotten to bring salvation to others. And that's the God that we serve. Through Christ, trust the God who is faithful to the forgotten wherever you are at. Maybe you are the person who feels forgotten. Maybe you're the person that feels as if you've been cast aside. Maybe you're the person that really have to recognize you see Judah in yourself, that you're at a point where you have grown spiritually dull. You've allowed the ways of the world to infect your senses, and that's where you're drawn. Trust the God who is faithful to, to the forgotten, who is pursuing holiness in his people. Trust him as your God, as your Savior. Let's pray. God, I ask your blessing on each of us. I pray that you will give us the spiritual sensitivity to see the way that we are deceived by um, our own desires, as Judah was, the way that we are deceived by that which is around us. God, free us and make us long for you and your holiness in our hearts and in our lives. I pray that you will give us eyes to see the forgotten around us, just as you saw the forgotten in Tamar. And God, I pray that you will help us to trust in your great salvation in all that we do. In Christ's name, amen.